Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. Good morning. So y'all met last week. You met Professor Proverb. All right, you met Brian. And on Tuesday mornings, he does that. He opens up Tuesday mornings with the Proverb. Well, he's not going to come every Tuesday morning and Tuesday night, right? So we, uh, I recorded him this morning, and so hopefully we're going to get his little sections and mine put up together um, so you can watch him do it. But I want to recap the highlights from his notes because it is a great introduction, and when you don't hear some of what he says, you, you miss out. And so I highlighted some of his notes, so I want to go through it a little bit with you, okay? Remember, last week, he did Proverbs 11.22. It was like a gold ring and a pig's snout is the gift of wisdom in a person who cannot handle it, okay? Like a gold ring is the monarchy in the hands of those who don't obey God. Like a gold ring and a pig's snout is talent in a person whose character doesn't match their charisma. So he spoke all about that. Then he went on to talk about each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. Do you remember that? And he talked about the fact that Michal or Michael had a heavy heart versus David was doing what? He had jubilant dancing. Um, He said it was like vinegar poured on soda. Mikkel, in her grief, in her prison of loneliness, barrenness, shunned by the one that she had once been in love with, was in contrast to David who was dancing down the streets. And she viewed David's dancing as hypocrisy. Have you ever had someone injure you? And then because of that, even their good behavior, you labeled hypocrisy? In some ways, we have branded them when that happens. I've done that. Have you done that? When someone who has hurt you later on does actually does good things, we tend to want to even brand those things what? Well, they're just a hypocrite. That's hypocrisy. But then again, there's David, and he saw her in a way where her spiritual gift was the gift of wet blanketry. Can't you hear Brian saying that? If you know him, that's like he loves little things like that. That her spiritual gift was the gift of wet blanketry, raining on a parade. Okay, the point is they were in different situations, okay? And the question is, how does God handle it? How does God handle it when there is stuff he delights in so much, yet at the same time, there is other stuff that breaks his heart? And Brian says this, tears can sing and, joys can, and joy can shed a tear. Is it possible? Says tears can sing and joy can shed a tear. Remember, each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share in its joy. So this morning he picked a proverb. The proverb was 21.1. Okay. And it says this. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. And he wanted to remind us of Proverbs, you know, the 101 of Proverbs is that the Proverbs are a mirror. That's what they're designed. 
They're designed to look into a mirror and see yourself. But he said in this opportunity, in this proverb, we're going to use it as a window to look into 2 Samuel 7 because that's where we're going to be tonight. It's a window. It's still an image of you, but it's a window. So the question that he started with is, is this proverb always true? So let me read it again. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Is it always true? Was every king's legacy that of doing what pleased the Lord? Does it apply to our, our world leaders, our country, state, and civic leaders? History provides ample evidence that it doesn't always seem to be the case. And actually, the Bible also shows evidence that that doesn't always seem to be the case. Wouldn't humanity have been spared so much grief if God would just overrule? But one of God's key directives was that mankind would have free will. So how in the world do you view this proverb with the sovereignty of God, but yet within it allow for the free will of man? Isn't that the rub? Isn't that the, the question? Second Samuel started off with David's, and we're going to see this tonight, David dreaming about building something amazing for the Lord. It just seemed like the right thing to do, he said. I live in luxury, so shouldn't the Lord. David has his theology in a box. And the danger of a temple is that it attempts to put God in a box, crafted beautifully, perhaps, by human hands. I'm going to talk about this later on. But at this point, Nathan the prophet even signs off on the building permit. But then the Lord intervenes. And the Lord comes to David and therefore he does overrule. And he says to David, no, you will not build me a house. Because of David's heart, the king's heart was in the hands of the Lord. He directed it as a water course where he, the Lord, pleases. So in this instant, because David was listening, David was close, Nathan was obeying the word of the Lord at this instance, the heart of the king was in the hand of God and he would direct him like a water course. But let me ask you the question. Why did he direct him then and not, correct him, and not direct him with Bathsheba? Interesting. We may wonder why God didn't direct David's heart at every turn. And Brian goes on to say one of the, one of the names of God is L. Micromanager. Is that his name? No. So Nathan's permit was bogus and God stepped in. I am convinced that what God says to David reveals how David must have felt about the denial. And so can you imagine, he goes on, and this is just a portion of Brian. He talks about, can you imagine how excited he would have been to build that house for God? Think of how excited he was when he was dancing down the streets of Jerusalem, bringing in the ark of God. Can you imagine how he would have been to build and dedicate this amazing temple that the ark would reside in. I mean, it would have been fabulous. And he says, so think of the disappointment. And he says, don't rush, don't rush through this passage to the next episode. Feel it. The disappointment, the regret that his building permit was denied because of his past life had to have stunned David, perhaps even shamed him. Can you imagine that? Having a desire to do something great for the Lord, and the answer comes back what? 
no? And one of the reasons the answer is no, and we're going to talk about did he want a house anyway, but when he finally does, he tells David, this is why you could not, based on his past life. That would be painful. And he felt that. And then I believe that this is why God does the next thing. It says, but what does God, the loving father, do? After disciplining the son he delights in, he loves on David with words of affirmation. David, I won't let you build me a fancy box to dwell in, but remember, remember all of this in your disappointment. I've chosen you for greater things, things you have no idea about. I've chosen you because I think you can handle being chosen. How sweet is that? In chapter 7, verse 18 through 12, you will see a list of affirmations where God is saying to David, I still believe in you. Just because there are consequences to your past, it doesn't mean I am done with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And after that, we're going to see tonight that after one correction, he gives what can either be labeled nine or ten affirmations. What does that show you right there? Have you ever heard someone tell a coach, listen, make sure you make a whole lot of deposits and very few what? Withdrawals. And in this case, this is what he's doing to his beloved son, David. He gave one correction. And remember, a correction doesn't mean yelling and screaming and a whole. It's a correction, a no. But then look at all the yes that we're going to see in this chapter. All the yes. Because we know the rest of the story, at least as far as 2020, God could have told David a whole lot of negative. He could have said, this dynasty won't be the way you, you thought it would, uh, it would work out. It isn't going to be pretty for a lot of years. It'll be messy and it's going to get really ugly. Wicked sons will take over the throne. My people will be devastated by exile by pogroms, and by holocausts. I mean, think about what God could have told him. The crushing of many hopes. And that temple you thought you wanted to build, dude, it is going to be destroyed. Not just once, but what? Twice. The temple is destroyed twice. But David, I will prevail. My kingdom will come. My will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because I am going to direct mankind like a water course where I please. I will build my kingdom and the gates of stubborn mankind's hearts will not prevail. What is this saying? It is the over-encompassing, I have the king's heart. I will direct the course. Now it may go off and it may get ugly and it may get sidetracked and it may not look like you think, but in the end, who is the one guiding the course? It is God. And we're going to see that. He ends with this. He says this. Application to you. Hear God's word to you. If you had hoped to build a life that would honor God, but the structure was a bit of a disaster, or not the prettiest, or it didn't start on the right foundation, or if you have lived your life and you are ashamed of what you have built, then hear the Father's words to you. You may think that disappointment and bad choices and missed opportunities have excluded you from building what I wanted for you. And it may be that your life hasn't been a fancy box for me to dwell in. Whose life has? But remember this in your disappointment about that. 
I am the God of redemption. I've chosen you for other things, great things, things you have no idea about. I've chosen you because I think you can handle being chosen. Will you trust the trust the Lord has placed in you? If you want to hear him speak his words, feel free to get online because they're beautiful. I only gave you a portion. Uh, two weeks ago, we did like a gold ring and a pig snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. I paraphrased it for you. Essentially, like a gold ring and a pig snout is wisdom in a person who cannot handle it. Like a gold ring and a pig snout is the monarchy in the hands of those who do not obey God. And then I drew the net in with like a gold ring and a pig snout is talent in a person whose character doesn't match their charisma. Last week, I did two Proverbs with you. Each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. And also like uh, one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on soda is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Michael's, Michal's heavy heart. David's jubilant dancing. Vinegar poured on soda. Michal in her grief, in her prison of loneliness, being shunned by David, in her situation of being barren, shunned by the one she once loved. She can only see David's dancing as just so much hypocrisy. When we have been hurt by someone, we view even their acts of integrity as hypocrisy, don't we? Let me repeat that. When we've been hurt by someone, we view even their acts of hypocrisy or their, their acts of integrity as hypocrisy. We have branded them and we've imprisoned them as well. And David, he saw her spiritual gift of wet blanketry. I don't know if you use that term down here in the States. But she rained on his parade, didn't she? But I wonder, was it really his parade? Or was it God's parade when he brought the ark into Jerusalem? And I want you to consider a twist on the, the proverb from last week, like singing songs to a heavy heart. Have you ever wondered if God's heart was heavy at all during some of this singing, this jubilation, this worship? If so, why would his heart have been heavy? Do you ever wonder how God handles this world, this planet? There are people who are doing the right thing, who are uh, exhibiting acts of righteousness, seeking justice, all the rest of it, living a good, obedient life. But at the same time, there's so many other people whose backs are turned to him. How does he handle it when there's so much stuff that he delights in, yet at the same time, there's so much other stuff that has to break his heart? Somehow, tears can sing and joy can shed a tear. So as God watches this, this parade, this, this ark coming in, this celebration, does God not also know the future? Does he not also know what's going to be happening in the, in the few years that lay ahead? That the very man who's worshiping and dancing with all his might before him will give in to his unchecked appetites and dishonor God's name. Do you think that God, as he saw David dancing before him, also knew in the back of his mind that adultery and murder and who knows how much other stuff would bring reproach to God's name? Do you think that God knew that the very monarchy that the people lusted after 
even though it didn't start on the right foot, that it would soon deteriorate even worse into something else. Songs to a heavy heart, to God's heart. And I wonder if that's why he says elsewhere in Proverbs that the Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. The sacrifice of the hypocrite, the worship of the self-indulgent, songs to a heavy heart, to God's heart. Well, today our proverb is 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Now, please remember the Proverbs 101 principle that I shared with you on uh, our first week together. And that is that every proverb is a mirror. Let's remember that. Every proverb is a mirror. And so as you stand in front of the mirror of 21.1, what do you see? Now, we're first going to look at this proverb as a window. We're going to look through this proverb, and we're going to examine, if you will, just this little brief episode that's in 2 Samuel 7. But we're going to move from the window to the mirror in a few minutes. And I wonder if you'll be able to see your image. All right, first, the window. I do wonder about this proverb. And so let me ask you this question. I'm just going to throw it out there because you need to wrestle with proverbs like this. Is it always true? Is this proverb always true? Now, there are going to be some who are going to cringe a little bit because this is God's word. How dare you even ask that question? But is it always the case that the Lord directs the king's heart wherever he pleases? Was every king's legacy, even in the Old Testament, was every king's legacy something that pleased the Lord? Well, you don't have to read too far to know the answer is no. What about to our present world leaders? Does it apply to them or country or state or civic leaders? Does God direct these leaders like a water course wherever he pleases? So history provides ample evidence that we have to really wrestle with this proverb, and so too does the Bible offer ample evidence that sometimes it doesn't seem like the Lord directs or influences the way we would like him to. Because wouldn't humanity have been spared so much suffering, so much atrocity, if God had always directed every world leader through history? If God would have overruled their choices, uh, but you see, one of God's key directives is that each one of us would have free will, and that's the mystery. So how does this proverb mesh with our ability, our great power to say no to God's leading? Because we've all said no at times, haven't we? Or is it just men's groups? <laughs> so I don't know the answer to that, so I'm done now. Shannon can come up and she can rescue yeah. this situation. All right. Well, let's get to 2 Samuel real quick. We've got David's dream to build something amazing for the Lord. Now, that's got to be good and right and proper. Because so many pagan gods back in those days, they had magnificent temples built for them. They had altars built for them. And what is the king of the universe? What does he have? He had a, a shabby little structure, a tent, a glorified tent. That's not going to do. This is what David is thinking since our God is bigger than their gods, our temple has to be magnificent, it has to honor him, it has to stand out, it has to be more impressive. Because that's surely how we demonstrate God's glory to a watching world. And so David's reasoning seems real legit to me. He says, I live in luxury, 
Why shouldn't the Lord? You see, David has put his theology into a box. He feels this is what God wants. And the danger of a temple is that it does attempt to put God inside of a box. It'll be a beautifully crafted box, maybe even padded pews, perhaps. Now, curiously, as you see this passage early in chapter 7, Nathan the prophet signs the building permit, doesn't he? If you look at it, he says, David, go do whatever your heart desires. The Lord is with you. Well, you see, Nathan has part of it right, that the Lord is with David. Because David was a man after God's own heart. Actually, let me rephrase that. Because David's heart, the king's heart, was in the hands of the Lord. He directed it like a watercourse, where he, the Lord, pleased. And so we may wonder why the Lord didn't direct David at every turn. Why didn't God direct David's steps away from that fateful night on the rooftop? When he saw things he shouldn't have seen. One of the Lord's names is not El Micromanager. And that's free will. It's a huge risk on God's part. But it shows us, humanity, the trust that God is willing to place in us. So, Nathan's permit was bogus. God stepped in. And here's what I like about Nathan. Good on Nathan here. Because he's not arrogant enough to get angry at God or to feel embarrassed that he told David, go ahead, I'm signing the, the permit for you. He doesn't hedge on God's redirection for David. Now, I am convinced that what God now says through Nathan to David reveals how David must have felt about the denial of his building program. If he had been so jubilant to bring the ark into Jerusalem, Imagine the joy and the excitement he would have had as he thought, I'm going to build something beautiful for this ark for the Lord. It would have been his great legacy. And so the disappointment be to be told, no, you are not doing it. The regret that the building permit was denied had to have stunned David to the core. I fully believe that. And perhaps it might have even shamed him because of the reason why he wasn't allowed to build the temple. So what does a God, the loving Father, do next in this passage? After disciplining his son David, and that's what that was, that message from Nathan. It was a, it was a correction, a, a rebuke of sorts. Not every rebuke is, a, is yelling at somebody, by the way. He tuned David in. But he then does what? He loves on David with a series of affirmations. David... I'm not going to let you build this fancy box for me to dwell in. But remember this in your disappointment right now. I have chosen you for greater things than the temple. Things that you have no idea about yet, nor will you ever fully realize in your lifetime. I've chosen you, David, because I think you can handle being chosen. Trust the trust I place in you, David. Now in chapter 7, verses 8 through 12, you see that recap of events that are meant to encourage David in this time, that God has been with him and will continue to be with him. And it's like God is saying to him, David, I still do believe in you. Just because there are consequences to your past, 
It doesn't mean I am done with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never. Now, depending on how you count them, if you look at the list there, there are nine, maybe ten affirmations. And there is an interesting formulation right there, a formula. There's one correction, one rebuke, but then nine affirmations. Now, those of you who are parents, were parents, maybe you feel it too. When you've been corrected, the value of a series of affirmations from the one who corrected you is pretty important, isn't it? Consider that. Now, let's go shopping in 7-Eleven here for a second as I close. The Lord declares to you, it says there, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And notice here that the roles are reversed. Do you see that? David, you wanted to build me a house, but I'm the house builder. And I will build you a house, I will build you a dynasty is what's intended there. And David, here's what you don't know. That dynasty, that house I'm gonna build for you is gonna lead to the king of kings. Now, because all of us in this room, we know the rest of the story, at least as far as 2020, God could have told David this. He could have said, David, this dynasty I'm going to build for you, it's not going to be the way you would draw it up, because it isn't going to be pretty for a lot of years. In fact, for a lot of generations. It's going to be messy. There are going to be ugly, wicked sons. My people are going to go into exile. Their dreams are going to be dashed. It's going to look like they're going to be obliterated from the face of the earth. Oh, and that temple you wanted to build for me, David? It's going to be destroyed. Not once, but twice. There will be hundreds and hundreds of years when there will be no temple, David. But I'm building something better. David, I will prevail. My kingdom is going to come. And my will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because I am going to direct mankind like a water course where I please. I will build my kingdom. And the gates of stubborn mankind's hearts are not going to prevail against what I have in mind. Mankind's resistance and selfishness and folly is a fortification against me. And it looks like a strong fortification, but I will prevail the fortification will not stand. And so in closing, this proverb is a mirror. Do you see yourself? What is this application to you this morning? And so I want you to hear God's word. I believe this is one aspect of it. If you had hoped to build a life that would honor God, but the structure may have been a bit of a disaster, you may have been building on the wrong foundation for years, it hasn't been the prettiest structure at best, even when you have built it. Or if you have lived your life and you are ashamed of what you have built, I want you to hear the Father's words to you. You may think that disappointment and bad choices and missed opportunities have excluded you from the building I wanted to build in you. And it may be that your life hasn't been a fancy box for me to dwell in, after all, Lewis has. But remember this, as you're disappointed perhaps about that. I am the God of redemption, and I've chosen for you other things 
better things, things that you may have no idea about. I've chosen you, each one in this room, because I think you can handle being chosen. And so I ask you this morning, will you trust the trust the Lord has placed in you? 2 Samuel chapter 7, Brugman in his commentary says, the dramatic and theological center of the entire Samuel corpus, this is it right here, chapter 7, of all of the writings of Samuel, this is the crux. This is the theological center. The, it is the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament. Those are big words. The Lord's words recorded here, constitute the longest recorded monologue since the days of Moses. God speaks in this chapter longer in a monologue, in a speech, longer than he did all the way back in the time of Moses. Actually, 197 words he speaks. It is here that David is made the founder of the only royal family that will be eternal. It is this covenant that will be the central message of all the prophets, the Davidic covenant. To people broken and humbled by invaders sent as agents of divine punishment, the Lord's promise to David of a kingdom that will endure forever was the seed of hope that resurrected a nation. Listen, the nation's story is not over. We're about to see a time in their nation's history, which we will call the golden years under David, where they actually live in quite the time of peace. It's almost where a huge portion of the Abrahamic covenant has come to fruition. They're going to have a marvelous time under David, this time of peace. But listen, they're not going to stay that way. Because after that, they are going to have kings. They're going to have kings that are wicked. Their kingdom's going to be divided. Half the kingdom, uh, the tribes of Israel are going to be scattered. The tribes of Judah are going to be taken into exile. The temple is going to be destroyed. Even when they return and they have to endure the Greeks and the Romans, once again, the temple's going to be destroyed. All of this stuff is going to happen to the people of Israel. And can I tell you what seed of hope they hold on to? This covenant, the fact that God promised David that from his line that a seed will come and that that kingdom will be eternal. The Lord's promise of an enduring house for David became Israel's assurance that God would once again lift the nation up and cause it to flourish anew. That was their hope. They put their hope in what we're going to see in this chapter in chapter 7. It is a huge part of the messianic expectation. They knew the Messiah would come from the line of David, and in their mind, they thought he would rule and reign as a political leader. They misunderstood. But the expectation of the Messiah is that he would come from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David, to rule. This chapter is also where major New Testament teachings come from, such as, the Messiah will be the son of David. He will be raised from the dead. He will build a house for God. He is going to be the possessor of a throne, the possessor of an eternal kingdom. He will be the son of God, and he will be the product of an immaculate conception because he is the son of God. All of these teachings in the New Testament have their foundation in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Davidic covenant. So this is a huge chapter.
Okay, so now let's break it down. Chapter 7, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now I want you to stop for a minute and I want you to picture this moment. David has built this amazing palace. These amazing porticos and courtyards looking out over Jerusalem. And he is out there and he is looking at all that has been accomplished. He is looking back on his life. And I want you to also look back. Think about this. Think about how far he's come. From the pastures with the sheep as a young man. From the fact that he wasn't even a blip on his father's radar when Samuel came to anoint the king. From the fact that the nights that he had to fight the lions and the bear. How about the fact when he made his debut with Goliath? Do you remember that? You've been here for all that, right? You remember? How about him playing the harp for Saul? And all those moments, good and bad, when the spear almost pierced him to the wall, right? How about his friendship with Jonathan? All the years they experienced together in the palace of Saul. What about all the victories in war? But what about when everything went south? What about the night he escaped? What about the dark nights in the cave? When he cried out the psalm, not one person cares for my soul. What about when he received the news of what had happened in Nob? When all 85 priests and their families had been slaughtered because of him? What about his memory of when he acted like a crazy lunatic so he wouldn't die at the hand of the Philistines? What about all those days running from Saul in the wilderness? What about the marriages and the children and living in the land of the Philistines? And what about the day when they returned and Ziklag had been destroyed and their families had been taken? I mean, can you imagine the memories? And all along, God had promised that one day he would stand as the king of Israel. And now he is standing out looking at everything. And he has come to this place. And not only has he built this palace on this amazing precipice of Jerusalem. He has brought the ark of God centrally back and now he is thinking back and he's like, oh my word, look at how far I've come. And he's thinking about how God, how far God has brought him and the fact that I live in this palace made of these enormous cedars and God is still living in a tent. And I want you to know that the heart of David is legit. He's sweet. His intentions are amazing. And it says that he, he then reaches out to Nathan and he says to Nathan the prophet, he tells him what he wants to do. And Nathan goes and says, do all that is in your heart. Why? Because at face value, what? There's nothing wrong with what is in David's heart. I mean, as far as Nathan the man he is looking at David and the desire for David to pour out his gratitude on God by building a temple. He is saying, what is in your heart is good. But the question is, 
he, it wasn't the job of Nathan to be that man. It was the job of Nathan to be the what? Prophet. And what is interesting is that later on that night, Nathan has to become the prophet because up until this time, God had not spoken to Nathan in regards to this. And that very night, God would speak through Nathan, the prophet, not the man. God did not speak to David one-on-one. He spoke through Nathan. Why? He wanted to make sure that these prophets were held in high esteem. And he was creating checks and balances. Civil leaders were never to have absolute and unquestionable authority. They were to follow God through his word and through the prophets. Do you remember when Samuel was giving all the instructions for what a king should be? And it said that he went back and wrote all of that down and put it in a book. And the king of Israel was supposed to always have that. He not only had those instructions, that word, he had the words of the prophet. The king was never to have unquestionable authority. The prophet brought checks and balances to the king. He brought the word uncompromised and he would show up and he would say, thus saith the Lord. And that was Nathan's job. And later on, you're going to see Nathan's job gets a little difficult when we run into the situation with David and Bathsheba and Uriah, right? And so even after saying to David, do all that is in your heart, it's pretty awesome that Nathan then comes back and says, wait a minute, thus saith the Lord. What I love about this, though, is that David sought accountability. Did you see that? He didn't just do what was in his heart. He sought accountability. Nathan assumed because David's heart was good that his ideas were good. That might be a good principle to write down in your notes. Nathan assumed because David's heart was good that his idea was good. And David assumed that Nathan's word was God's word. Yet Nathan had not heard from God on this issue. Let me ask you a question. Can God be with a man, but man make a decision without him? Yes. Yes. And what is beautiful is the fact that the intentions of their heart were so good. David asked Nathan as accountability. At first, he says, do what is in your heart. But yet God spoke to Nathan And Nathan does his job and goes back to David. So you do see their willingness to be led at the heart of the king, led like a water course. And so God is going to give him instruction. And here it is in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So the question is, did God desire a permanent house or dwelling? That is the question. He had never asked for one. With all the previous leaders... All the judges, he had never asked them to make him a permanent dwelling. Here's what I want you to know. This is worthy of writing down. Did God desire a dwelling or instead desire to dwell amongst his people? Did God desire a dwelling 
Or did he desire to dwell amongst his people? We're going to break that down a little bit. They lived in tents. Do you recall that? They lived in tents. Therefore, their God, what? Lived in a tent. They were nomadic. What does that mean? They moved. So guess what their God did? He moved. Exodus 40, 34 says, when they set up the tabernacle, it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The visible presence of God rested on this tent. We refer to that presence as the Shekinah. Have you ever heard that? That people call it the Shekinah glory. Okay, the word Shekinah is from a Hebrew, the Hebrew root word that means to dwell or to tabernacle. Okay, so in other words, it is saying the point of the tabernacle was not a permanent dwelling, but the fact that the glory of God or the presence of God dwelt among his people or tabernacled with his people. The point of the tabernacle was God dwelling with his people. So as we study this stuff, there should be questions in your mind. And I want you to be okay having questions. I think sometimes we're raised where questions scare us. Because when we start to have questions or we think God, like we're not understanding, he seems to contradict himself. Sometimes in our mind, we just shut the question down and we never answer it. Can I tell you, you're missing out because to struggle over a question, to meditate over the word, that's what God desires. Don't get scared when something doesn't make sense or you think something contradicts what you have been told. Struggle with the questions. For example, I'm going to tell you some of the questions that I think are relevant in, this, in these sections. I think it is interesting. God doesn't want them to have a king, yet he anoints one. God doesn't want them to have a building, but yet he commissioned Solomon to build it. God wants no images, yet he commanded them to form a bronze serpent. Do you know that story, by the way? The Israelites are coming out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. Uh, they have been grumbling against God in one of the many situations. And in that situation... God allows fiery serpents to come into their camp and these serpents are biting them and it is extremely painful and they're dying. And so they come to Moses and they petition to Moses, seek God on our behalf, we're dying. And so Moses goes before the Lord and the Lord tells him, I want you to make a bronze image of a serpent and raise it up. What? I could have sworn back at the mountain you made it very clear, thou shalt, there shall be no graven images, right? But in this case, they're dying and he's over here working with bronze. And he is making an image of a what? A serpent. And in our day, we're like, a serpent? And he raises it up. And the instructions were, you tell the people that if they look upon the serpent, they will live. What? So in other words... If you believe the word of God and you do what he says and you look upon that which is killing you, you will live. And later on in the New Testament, Jesus says, and the son of man will be lifted up like the bronze serpent. Why? It seems so simple, doesn't it? 
If you believe what I've said and you look to me and you look at what is killing you, he who had no sin became sin on the cross. Beautiful, right? But in the context of the Old Testament, really? You're going to have them build a brazen serpent? Why? In our inability to grasp his majesty and his transcendence. Do you know what that word means? Let me tell you. Existence or experience beyond the normal or physical realm. Existence or experience beyond the normal or physical level. So in order for us to grasp his majesty and his transcendence, he gives us the concrete to enter partway into the unfathomable. He is using what we can see and comprehend so that we can partially understand what we do not see and comprehend. Do you understand that? David is looking around, experiencing the beauty of his palace, his buildings, and he has a desire for God to live in such a place. He's like, I don't want my God to live in some shabby tent. The pagans' God had great temples. Our God doesn't deserve any less than that. But is that the point? The problem is God gives the concrete for us to understand the mystery, but the tendency for us as people is what do we do? We begin to worship the concrete. And that is what begins to happen. That is what happened with the bronze serpent. I'll tell you about that in a second. One of the beautiful things about the tabernacle is that it was plain on the outside. If you looked at it, it wasn't special at all. It didn't look like anything special. Nothing about its outer image seemed amazing or glorious or beautiful. The beauty was hidden within. And to be honest, the deeper you got into the presence of God, the more glorious it was. What ended up happening to the bronze serpent? 2 Kings 18.4. Hezekiah's king, it says this, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. Are you kidding me? The people of God have the tendency to worship the concrete. So I just wonder with all the grandeur of the temple, did at some point it become an idol? Did they forget God's promise of his presence? Did they exchange relationship for ritual? I am telling you, all through the Old Testament, it ends up being that way. When they came out of Egypt, how did they worship God? They built a golden calf. When they were commanded to raise up the bronze serpent, later on, what did they do? They worshiped it. When they wanted a king, Right? And God didn't want to give him a king because he was the king. But eventually he gives them David as a prince to be a reflection of who? The king that is coming, this eternal king that is coming, this temple that is to be built, right? It was about God dwelling with them. He's always wanted to dwell with them. That's what he wanted. But yet he allowed them to commission this temple so that he could reveal himself. But then what do you think they did? They began to worship the temple. 
And now I'm really going to step on your toes. Let me ask you something. Is the Bible God? No. We're going to talk about that a little more. The Bible is not God. So when you hear, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, who is that? That's the Word in flesh. That's Logos. If he was already in the beginning before, and he was God and with God, and all things were made through him, and when John was writing it, he did not have a Bible. The Bible is not God. The Bible reveals God. That's what it does. And so I am telling you that when we look at it and we think, no, this is what it says. This is what I've always thought. This is the way it is. And we literally almost worship what we think of it or what it is. And we forget as we are dividing and fracturing over all of this, that we're forgetting the Bible was given to us to reveal God and the fact that God came in flesh so that we could know him. We have a tendency to want a ritual over a relationship. We have a tendency to worship the concrete over the true God. And the whole point of him coming was to dwell amongst his people, to be with his people. John 1:14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. That word, dwell, is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Shekinah. Okay, it is skenao, and it means to encamp, to pitch a tent, or to tabernacle. Here he came. It says that he wanted to what? He put on flesh, and he, the glory, the nature of God put on flesh, and he what? He tabernacled among us. Matthew 1, 23 says this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. God tabernacling among us, revealing the glory of God, the Son of God rubbing elbows with the common. That's what he's always wanted. And did you know that if you think about the fact that David desired and Solomon did and later on Herod did and they made this, ta- this temple so ornate, so grand, so beautiful, yet when Jesus showed up to tabernacle amongst us, he reminds me more of the tent. Because it says in Isaiah 53, 2, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no stately former majesty to attract us, no beauty that we should desire him. What was he like on the outside? Common. He wasn't so ugly, he stuck out. It's the way I picture it. And he wasn't so amazingly beautiful. He stuck out. He was the tent. He was the tabernacle. Because the point was, he did not want a dwelling. He wanted to dwell with his people. And he came to the common. He came to the everyday. He came to the center so that he could rub elbows with the common. There was nothing extravagant about his outer form, but it just like the tabernacle, the glory was where? Within. 
the glory of the Lord, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. A house wasn't something God had wanted, nor, by the way, did he need. I kept thinking of Psalms 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And then my mind went to Psalms 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. David's heart was great. And although the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory did rest above the tent or the tabernacle, let me tell you what, it fills the earth. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Can you imagine trying to house God in the speck of dust that the earth is in a sunbeam, in a box? We missed the point. Don't put me in an image because no image can contain me. The only reason I came down to show you the glory of the Lord is because I wanted to dwell with you. And he goes on to say in verse 8, Now therefore, thus say to my servant David, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And from the time that I appoint judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Half power version. David, dude, I have been dwelling with you. I've been with you. I appreciate your desire to bless me with a house, but I am actually the one doing the blessing. All you have is mine. I have brought you here to this appointed place. I have cut off your enemies. I will make your name great. Who does this sound like? What other covenant have I taught you? Abraham, you my man. I am going to give your descendants this land. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all nations will be blessed through you. We are seeing a portion of that in fruition under the reign of David. He is saying, your people have come to a permanent place. I am going to give them rest from their enemies. David, you son of Abraham, I'm going to make your name so great. These are the golden years. These are a time of rest. And so he says, I am the one doing the blessing. And he goes on to say this. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before me. Do not freak out about that. It is talking about the anointing, the job of king. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. Right there, the Davidic covenant. Number one, he says, I will build you a house, which means dynasty. I will build a dynasty out of you, David, and I will give you a seed from your own body. I will raise him up. Now, who do we know in the short term is his seed that is going to take over the kingdom? Do you know who comes next? Solomon, right? Okay, but we know that it doesn't end with Solomon, right? Because the true seed that he is talking about is who? Jesus. That Jesus is the seed. He is the seed of David that is being talked about, which is so beautiful because think about all the way in the beginning. I will put hatred between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You will bruise his heel. He will, we have always had from the beginning a promise of a coming seed. That seed will come from Eve, from woman, not from man whose seed is corrupt. Later, that seed is going to come through the family of who? Abraham. Now we are getting closer and now we find out that this seed is going to come from the family, the royal family of David, and he will have an everlasting kingdom and a throne that he will sit on forever to reign. The seed of David. If you look at Luke 1, 31 through 33, it says this, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and we will be called the what? The son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Judah forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. Can you imagine getting that information? After all this time, I wish I could tell you the history of the Jews from the time of David. I probably could. But from the time of David until the time of Christ, and he shows up with this announcement. They have been waiting for this seed. The one who would sit on the throne of David, who would secure the nation of Israel. And this announcement was made. Number three, it says, I will establish his kingdom and he will build a house for my name. I love that. He will build a house for my name. The name of God signifies God himself. Okay, so think about that. Do you know some names of God? that you've learned? El Shaddai, Jehovah, Rapha, Jehovah, Nisi, right? All of those different names tell us the character of God. That's part of the Ten Commandments. Honor my name because my name represents what? Who I am and you will represent me. So the fact of honoring God's name is not just not using his name in vain. It is honoring his character in all that we do. It's, it's deep. And so he is saying that this house will bear his name. What he is saying is his promise is he would put his name on it. He would be present and he would reveal himself there. This house was that he was going to allow Solomon to build was so that God could be what? Revealed. Not so that God could be put in a box, but so God could be revealed so his majesty and transcendence could be understood through the what? More concrete. 
What do you think our tendency is? Worship the concrete. Now, we know that God did fill Solomon's temple. Second Corinthians, I mean Second Corinthians. Second Chronicles 7.1 says this, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. We know that. So the glory of God filled the temple of Solomon. So in the short term, this promise saw fruition for a temporary time in the temple that Solomon built. But what happened to the temple Solomon built? Do you know? You're like, no. Okay, let me teach you something real quick. Okay, United Kingdom, 120 years. David, I mean, Saul, no heart. David, whole heart. Solomon, half heart. Okay, so for 120 years. See, I'll get stuff Tuesday morning doesn't get. Okay, for 120 years, the nation of Israel was united under three kings. Who's the first king? Saul, no heart. David, whole heart. Solomon, half heart. Each 40 years, 120 years. After Solomon, because of his disobedience, the kingdom was going to be divided. Okay, listen why. In 1 Kings, I'm just going to read you a portion of it. In 1 Kings, it talks about the fact that Solomon had a problem with women. I mean, he married everybody in the world. He was in love with every ite. The Midianites, the Perizzites, the mosquito bites, right? I do that every time. But there wasn't an ite woman alive he wasn't attracted to. And he either married him or they were his concubine. I'm going to tell you what, that was a bad life for a woman. You might, got, you might be with him one night in your whole life, and then the rest, of, you're done. And so, I mean, this was his life. And God had said, don't do this because your heart's going to be swayed. For their gods. And that's exactly what happened. And so he says in 1 Kings 11, 11, So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my, command, my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you. Now this is interesting considering that the Davidic kingdom was supposed to be what? Eternal. But in the short term, we're not seeing that. And it says, I will tear it from you. I will not do it during your lifetime for the sake of your father, David, but I will tear it out of your hands, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom, but will give one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem, I have chosen. So here's what happens, right? You have a united kingdom for 120 years. Saul's the first king. David's the second king. Solomon, who has a half heart, his heart becomes divided because of that. The kingdom is divided. That goes on for 400 years. Okay? It starts with the son of Solomon because Solomon became the king that Samuel said would definitely happen. He acquired women, he acquired horses, and he raised taxes so much that everybody was like, forget you, Solomon. You are not like your father. We are no longer staying with the family of David. And so 10 of the tribes deserted the, all of the tribes of Israel. And yet here, the tribe of Judah with Benjamin stayed under the house of David. And you have a divided kingdom and it's split. And along the way, the Assyrians come in and they scatter all the 10 tribes of Israel. But God, because there was a good king at the time, held Judah secure. But then come the Babylonians. And the Babylonians come in and they eventually take the tribe of Judah and they destroy Jerusalem. And what do they do to the temple? 
destroy it. And the tribe of Judah and Benjamin are taken into exile for 70 years. What hope do you think the people held on to? I mean, think about it. They've gone through 400 years of terrible kings. The Davidic covenant. But there is coming one from the line of David that will unite us again and sit on the throne and beat down our enemies and we will live in this time of peace and we will flourish. And they looked for it and they looked for it. Eventually the Persians let them come back under Zerubbabel who rebuilt the temple. It wasn't very pretty, but he rebuilt it. Ezra had a revival amongst the people. And then you enter into this time of quiet the intertestament period for 400 years where we have the Greeks and we have the Romans and all of this. And then guess who shows up? Jesus. And Jesus actually calls himself something interesting. He says in John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. Now, let me ask you this. Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple when he came back. Okay. We have the Greeks and then the Romans. Herod revamped the temple, okay, the second temple, and built it. It was amazing, okay? So that is the temple that Jesus is looking at, is Herod's temple. That was unbelievable. But what does he say? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Did they understand him? They're like, what are you talking about? Do you know how long it took to get this thing done? And you think it's going to be destroyed? And who was he talking about? Himself. He was the temple. The glory of, the, of God was in him. He was from the line of David. He was the temple. He was God in flesh, tabernacling among us. Why? To reveal him. He says, listen, nobody has seen God but the Son. If you want to know God... Know me. I'm here to show you what he is like. Why? Because no matter how much they had taught, no matter how much God stooped to our level to try to make us under things like understand things like be born again or understand majesty or understand, we always tended to go to the concrete, always the ritual and not the relationship. So he showed up in the flesh. God himself stooped down so that he could have a relationship with mankind, rub shoulders with the common. And then he built a house for God. Because when he rose again, the Holy Spirit came. And what did the Holy Spirit do? Took up residency in us. We are the temple of God. Because God refused to ever leave us alone. He will never depart from us. He never leaves us alone. And now he says, do what I do. Rub shoulders with the common. Pick up your cross and what? Follow me. What does that mean? I love how Mark Moore puts it. He says, when Jesus picked up his cross, individuals were saved. But when we pick up our cross... Our society is saved. I love it. Because that we are in charge of revealing Christ. It's how we live, how we pick up our cross. That is bringing kingdom come. Thy will be done. 
because he actually rules in the hearts of man. I mean, this Davidic covenant is unbelievable. And when we get back, let me just make sure I told you everything. The kingdom would be eternal. He says, I will be a father to him and he will be my son. Who is that? Jesus was God's son, right? He was not born of man. It was an immaculate conception, virgin birth. The Holy Spirit came over Mary and she conceived God's own son. And then it says, this is interesting. I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the son of men for his iniquity. Now we know that happened to Solomon. But what about Jesus? Although he did not deserve it, what did he take upon him? He took upon our iniquity and he did receive the punishment for our sin. All of this was the Davidic covenant that was fulfilled and will be fulfilled when the Lord returns. It's amazing. After this, if you see, so your homework, and this is what I told Tuesday morning, I want you to look at verse 18. So we've gone through the covenant. I've done the best I can. There, you could research this forever. So awesome. But look what comes next. And this is your homework. By the way, if you want to read some more on that, read Acts 2, Peter's sermon. He clarifies. Listen, this Davidic covenant was not talking about David, y'all. This is my version of what he said. He didn't say y'all. Uh, Peter goes, y'all, this wasn't David. David's still in the grave. This was Jesus, the line of David. He died and he was raised again. So this seed of David that has been promised all along was Jesus. And you guys crucified him. But he raised again from, and they're like, what shall we do? So read that. It's beautiful. And Acts 13, 13 also says the same, if you want to look at some more. But in 2 Samuel 7, verse 18, it says this. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, I mean, all this started when he said, Lord, I'd really like to build you a house. And God said, yeah, no, sorry about it. And then poured out this blessing on David like you have never seen. And he comes in and he's thinking about it. He sat down before the Lord and he said, who am I? Oh, Lord God. And what is my house or my dynasty or my family that you have brought me thus far? What was that moment like? When is the last time you sat down and really in no rush whatsoever, no distraction with your journal and you said, who am I, God, that we have come this far? Mark it from the beginning. As a child, what even brought you to know him? Who are those people? Thank God for them. How you've grown, how you've been enlightened along the way, how you've fallen away and he's yanked you back. I mean, think about your journey and journal it. Remember it. Lord, how have we come so far together? And when he sat down and he had this attitude of gratitude, I'm going to tell you what came out of it because everything is God. You did this. You did this. You did this. And then all of a sudden in verse 22, he says, therefore you are great. Oh Lord God. I bet his tone changed for there is none like you. And there is no God beside you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. 
He sat down and after all of that gratitude, I don't know about you, but when I do stuff like that, all of a sudden I'm like, who am I that the highest king would welcome me? Sing with me. I was lost, but he brought me his love for me. Oh, his love for me, who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God, yes, I am, in my Father's house. There's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. And it reminds me of how we started. The proverb that said, the heart of the king is in the hands of God. And like a watercourse, he will maneuver his steps. How in the world does the sovereignty of God work with the free will of man? When you look back at these stories and you realize the messiness of man, but yet God, in his promises, he fulfills his promises. And you look back at a moment now and especially later and you go, God, how did we come so far? Because he keeps his promises. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are a promise-keeping God. Lord, I thank you so much that you deemed me worthy to be chosen. I thank you, God, that when I could not get to you, comprehend you, understand you, you were willing to stoop to me. That God, all through Scripture, as you tried to reveal yourself in all kinds of types and shadows, Lord, I am so thankful that you put on flesh and dwelt among us and that we got to behold your glory. A God who would rub shoulders with the common, a God who would reach out and touch the sinner, pay our penalty, and then, Lord, ascend to the right hand of God the Father, and God, I thank you that one day you will return, not as the Lamb of God, but as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the seed of David. And you will rule, no doubt about it. You will rule and it will be a time of peace for eternity. No more enemy. Your kingdom will be established forever. Lord, I thank you. It is our hope. It is still our hope today. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at itsmaryshannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.